my name is Kevin Fryert. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondyl metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. So the, the idea of um, of 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 doing a podcast um, has has never been in my mind, to be quite honest. Um, but but the idea of sharing my journey uh, to the world has always been there from day one. When I got started in this journey, one of the questions that I keep asking myself was why why am I doing this? My, yes, my son has a rare condition, but why should I have to go find a solution? For his problem, there is billions of dollars of, of scientific investment, and there is there is I don't know hundreds of thousands of doctors out there, and and there are more advanced uh, big foundations out there. Why am I doing this all by myself? That's why I started this thought process of whatever I do, I should share it out there to the world. So I have another other family, another uh, person like me coming along can just pick up from where I left. And so they can build up on top of what I did and not really start from scratch again. And, and in that interest, uh, the podcast is a fantastic medium. And, and thanks, Kevin, for kind of bringing this idea to, to life. Well, I think that what you just showed there, that the willingness to share your experience for the benefit of others, the generosity that's in there and to spend time talking about it and filling people in and and hopefully in a, you know, a couple of months we'll catch up with our timeline here and be able to be giving, you know, nearly live updates on what's going on in your life here. What do you want to give to other parents? What what would you hope that they would take away from a podcast like this? This is a very lonely journey when your kid has a rare condition. Actually when your kid has any medical condition it is lonely for that matter. Your your friends and family have no clue what you're dealing with unless it's cold. Everybody knows what that feels like. Pretty much people don't know what you're dealing with. The, the emotional, the physical drama toll that, that your body has to go through and your family goes through, it's, it's untold of and you don't have the support structure that society has created for other activities like when you have cold or when you fall down or, or when you graduate from college. Everything has a social structure and an activity to it. There is no social structure. There's no help structure here. When, when I got started... I felt that loneliness. The way me, me and my wife and our family were able to sort of beat that loneliness up was by reading up on the internet about others' lives and, and how others uh, pioneered through the journey. And in the process, we had the pleasure of connecting with several other rare disease communities. Some of them are pretty much like me, getting started. Some of them are a little bit more advanced. Some have uh, multi-million dollar funding and, uh, and, a, and a big foundation already way advanced. But whoever these people are, uh, one thing I've realized is they're just like me. They're a parent with a kid that is having a lot of difficulties, and they're trying to do everything they can to change the world. You said there is no social structure for this, and then you went out and you found one. And there is a social structure there. 
It's kind of hidden though, isn't it? Just like rare diseases are rare, so are the interactions that we have with people around them. I felt the same thing when I came out of industry. Suddenly, I, I was launched into this world of all these patients and families and caregivers who were all in the same space of when we started, we thought we were alone. And over and over again, you hear people tell the story of, and, and then I found someone else. And then I found someone else. And, and that's a turning point when you start to realize I'm not alone. There's not a lot of us. It's not crowded, but, but it is a lonely place. To me, the, the, the way I actually found people initially in the initial days, in the first few weeks was YouTube and podcasts. I would, uh, I would go to YouTube and look at, like, just search for rare disease families or whatever. Uh, and and uh, Global Genes podcast has been my, my thing that I would just listen to on the way to work and on the way back home. Um, so two podcasts, half hour each day. And that used to be my, my kind of entry. And, and uh, that's, how, that's how I found this community, pretty much. So let's go back in time a little bit. When Sanath was a young man, a younger man, before you even, you know, before you're, you were even thinking about having a son, what were you doing? What were you, what's your education in? What were your interests? I grew up in a southern part of India in a city called Chennai. Um, and and we did, I did my bachelor's there. And then I came here to do a master's in UC San Diego. I, I chose San Diego because they have, there were beaches and sharks, but I fortunately I didn't, I didn't see the sharks. Uh, after that, I was working at, at a couple of uh, software companies, and uh, most recently, I'm working at uh, Amazon as a software engineer, and that's my day job, and I love it. It's it's uh, it's a fantastic place to work at. My before before we even had the thought of having a kid, my sort of dream has always been to uh, to start a company at some point or in the future to do to do something that is that is very interesting and different and create a new product me and my wife have done several of these little adventures uh, we we built a wedding invitation company 3 4 years ago uh, it's called cards the website is still up uh, we built a a automated system where someone can customize their invitation online and buy it uh, directly there specifically targeting the Indian market because there was nothing that existed back then. And uh, it was just, you know, me and my wife that, that did this with a, with a few other people's uh, help like here and there. But it was, it was one, of a, one of the best experiences we've had. And most of my learning about how to go from zero to one was from, from, from that experience. And I think it's, it's one of those transformational things that, that just gave us the confidence that we could start off with a problem that is completely nebulous. We have no clue. We are completely uh, don't have the capacity to even solve the problem and then go step by step, one step at a time. And then eventually, you know, a year later, a year and a half later, you have solved the problem and you have now some, a working product and a working set of customers. Um, so that's sort of what gave us the product thinking and the ability to kind of be more entrepreneurial and solve problems. So you mentioned your wife. Um, what's your wife's name? We'll meet her in later episodes, but my wife's name is Ramya. Um, she's a UX designer uh, at a company here uh, in Seattle called Smartsheet. She's an excellent designer. In fact, with the cards, wedding invitations that we did, and she, she, she made about, uh, I'd say, 1,000 invitations in a span of a year. So that's about three invitations a day. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal how, my, how, how, how she could crank out these sort of designs from there. 
and and that sort of built her design muscle up and now she's working as a ux designer oh uh we went to the same secondary school so this was um uh eighth grade um and we went to the same school uh and then we started dating um after after we went to college uh and then she moved here right around the same time i moved here as well to the us and then yeah we got married so we've known each other for a really long time now so you've you had a lot of things that happened before you got married um, and this was before you even you know had a child even remotely even remotely we were thinking yeah and, and another thing i wanted to mention and this is this is one of the most hilarious things that i keep i keep, I keep going back to you know steve jobs has had this commencement address in stanford uh, where he says, you know, just lay the dots down and, and your life, it'll connect itself automatically. And, and, and something like that happened in my life where uh, when I was studying on master, my master's, I was super interested in building computer processors. So I was doing research in, in how to build, you know, processors that have um, 100 cores in them and that just super beefy machines. And I went to this job fair. It was not even an interview. It was just a job fair. And I went to the Intel booth and I was speaking to this guy. I was telling him excitedly about all this amazing, cool stuff that I've been researching on. And he was like, mm, so you look like you're a software engineer. You don't, you don't write, you don't build any hardware because you've just been writing software simulations of hardware. Uh, so I don't think you're fit for this job. And, and that pissed me off. I was like, Intel is my dream job. I was going to go build processors. And now this guy is just like, you're not fit to be a, a, an engineer here. And I got so freaked out. And right around that time, my roommate in college was working in biology. And he said he's working with flies and he's working with DNA and he's changing the world. And I was like, okay, I, I need to change the world just like him. So I went in right sat out of the, uh, outside of the job fair hall and emailed a few bio, biology, bioinformatics professors at, at UC San Diego. And I told them, hey, I know software. I can do some software work for you. Do you have any opening? And that's when I got into one of the labs there and uh, did my master's thesis in bioinformatics. And luckily enough, I actually wrote a paper in Nature. This was a review publication, and it was mostly the postdoc that helped me a lot. But I have a name in, in a Nature publication. And after that, I went back to software. I said, yeah, I, I can't change the world enough. Uh, myself, it's too hard, and I, I'm not good at it. Uh, actually, I sucked at it uh, to a point where, at that point, right after graduation, um, I hope my professor doesn't listen to this. I don't know the difference between a gene and a protein. So I had no formal education in biology. I don't know what a gene was. I didn't know what a protein was. I knew that there were names in my in my algorithm, but I don't know what those mean, what those meant. So I, I sucked at it, and so I was like, okay, screw it. I'll go back to software, and now. But uh, fast forwarding now, after Raga was born, I'm now back into the zone again. So the dots are now connecting. So wherever I'm at, I just have to look back at what's happened. And you're a perfect example of that. You started a business with your wife, a business that was, was, was a, you know, a huge amount of work to get going. And you started from nothing. You went into biology, into bioinformatics, because you wanted to change the world. Well, that's that's noble thought, but gee, you went into bioinformatics, but you didn't learn the biology yet, or you didn't think you learned it. Um, it was off to the side. Well, you've written a scientific paper for a very prestigious journal, which actually, that's a, a big accomplishment 
and explain some things that I've learned about you since we met. It's like, well, if you can do that, then yeah, you could do some of the things you've done. When you guys were expecting Regav, all those things were like accumulating and you had no idea why. That's true. Yeah, we we um, we had no idea uh, that we were going to have uh, all this challenge up front. Uh, we were we were preparing for for Raghav, and that's that's also right around the time when my wife went back to job after the business, and it was it was fantastic. Like it was the probably the best I'd say nine months in my life um, in the recent times uh, in the recent several years because uh, life was settled. I'm having a kid. I have I have an amazing job. We moved to a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, it was amazing. And uh, actually, speaking of connecting the dots, something happened in those nine months that made a huge difference later on. So I started commuting because I moved to a newer house, a newer house farther away from my work. So I started commuting in uh, in the bus, and I had to do something to keep myself occupied. And that's the first time I had I had like free time in my hand while I was on the bus because I used to just walk to work. Um, and I started reading books. Uh, some some like seminal works in software. I started reading them, and it got really hard to read books on the commute. So I started listening to podcasts uh, and and YouTube videos, and I learned a ton about software. and And during that time, sort of my uh, understanding of software got more fundamental. So I started going away from the the higher layers, how to implement something, to why is something built this way and started diving deep into the why questions of, of things. And I, I actually made pretty big inroads in, in whatever I was working on, using asking the why question. And I would learn to ask the why question by listening to videos on YouTube and, and podcasts and stuff. But right after Raga was born and I'm back in this journey of rare diseases, that's the tool that I'd been using to get up to speed, to get connected with the community, to learn the biology. There are days when I go to YouTube and go to those, you know, um, to those videos that high school students or even even younger kids watch where they say, here is a cell and the cell has a nucleus because I don't know what a cell is. Uh, I had to see the videos of what a cell looked like uh, to even understand what that meant. So those sort of, th 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 those, um, uh, those nine months where I actually learned, trained myself how to learn uh, were, were super helpful after because now I had a tool I can use to learn. Those nine months, I, ha I asked the why question a lot. Why is something this way? Why is something this way? And, and you know, the why question is, is recursive. So you, you ask the why question, you get an answer, and you ask, oh, why is it answered the way it is? And, and you get another question. You keep going down the path and get to at least what looks like, you know, reasonable truth. Uh, and, and that helped me a lot to understand and, and separate out signal from noise um, when I started the Radisees journey. Like speaking of connecting the dots, that was another incident that I, I'd say was, was pre prepare myself to this. It's remarkable because it, we're of different generations and in the way that the education that I went through, there were structures and milestones and things that you had to hit. You never would just go to YouTube and just search because you, you may get good stuff, you may get bad stuff. The difference was you're questioning, well, why is this? Seeking the truth. That That's a wonderful compass to take you through all this noise that there's a signal out there for, but there's so much misinformation. You actually found the, the technique for getting through misinformation, which is keep asking why. And if something doesn't add up, 
you say, well, that couldn't have been true. The other one has to be true. So, Exactly. Well, I keep, I keep reflecting on those moments where, where I, I never knew that it was preparing me for the things that were going to come in the future. It, it's fantastic. But then, you know, nine months of, of fun times. Towards the end of the pregnancy, we had some issues. The day Raga was born, it, this was funny. We went to the doctor for a regular checkup and uh, his, his name is more popular uh, he's, he's, he, more people know him than they, more people, the people that know me, they know me as Raghav's dad. Uh, I'm proud of that. My, my son is more popular than me. The day Raghav was born, we went for a normal checkup and the doctor did things and uh, they, they said, uh, we're done. Okay. So me and my wife were like, okay, let's go back to work. You know, she's like, no, 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 we're done with the pregnancy. We have to, we have to, we have to give birth right away because his heartbeat was was slowing down and she noticed that and she said no we'll just do an emergency c-section and and get him out and you today's Raghav's birthday and when both me and my wife were like looking at the date what is what is today's date <laughs> is he going to be actually born today is it, is it a good date and uh, that was about four five hours later he was born to be honest i had never held a baby in my hand until then i was always afraid of had, holding a baby because they were so little was afraid of dropping them. The the doctor, I was in the in the procedure room. Uh, she came and gave the baby to me. Oh my God! It was it it was the it was the best feeling. I think it, it, I I cannot describe how it, how I felt there. It it it's out of the world. And he was so little. He was you know he opened his eyes. I was surprised that the baby would open his eyes right away. And he was looking at things. Obviously, he didn't know what was going on. I could actually sense that he he was freaking out himself. <laughs> Just looking at his expression, his is so cute, uh, freak out expression. Well, you talk about signal to noise. All of a sudden, he had all these visual and sound and all sorts of signals that he never felt before, and his brain was just going, "What's that?" Yeah, yeah, and and, and I, I think I think he also wanted somebody to hold him and cuddle him and and feel and say and, and give that like feeling of safe safety. It was it was phenomenal. It was an exhausting day, but uh, I think the the end was it. After he was born, it was it was such an ecstatic feeling. I still remember every moment of the, the maybe the two or three hours that happened right after right after his birth. It is, I think one of those one of those things that you can never forget. The the story started unfolding. I would say four or five hours after birth, he wouldn't take a bottle. He wouldn't suckle. So the doctors were not sure what was happening. Uh, they thought he was just, you know, kind of recovering from uh, the birth uh, because, you know, it was an emergency birth. And there was a lot of confusion going on. And uh, he wouldn't suckle for about six hours. So the doctors took him to the NICU. And uh, we didn't know what a NICU was. So NICU is Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. They said NICU, so it sounds fancy. We were just sleeping over the night and the doctor comes in and she says, I don't think things are going fine. She didn't sugarcoat, which was crazy. You know, I think back about it. She said, I think your son probably has a long-term neurological brain development problem. And this was probably seven hours after birth. She hadn't taken a single blood test, not a single x-ray, uh, not an MRI, no test. The, the kid was just in the NICU. He was being stabilized and she had this observation. And she said, we think this is probably genetic. Now, I don't know if the doctor was brilliant or if she was absolutely bonkers because seven hours after birth, 
she has not done any test and we have, we, we are two exhausted parents and my wife just had a surgery. She's coming and telling us my, my son has a genetic problem. And it's, it's absolutely, uh, we freaked out. And, and that was, that is a defining moment that sort of led to four months of us being in denial about doctors. Because we were like, how can she make such a determination with no test at all? Maybe she was brilliant, but um, her brilliance didn't matter because we thought she was incapable that she was making the wrong conclusion, wrong diagnosis too soon without even doing anything. And she presented it in a very raw manner to us that we, the, 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 the anger that we felt um, kind of, sort of biased us towards doctor for the next four months. Actually not that doctor, for doctors in general, because we thought that uh, my son was just fine he is maybe just a little bit slower than normal. You know, kids are, are, have all different characteristics. And uh, maybe we are just going down this path too soon. And after that, for several days, he, had, he was feeding through a feeding tube that was inserted through his nose. And they would feed him a lot of milk through the tube, and he would tolerate it fine, which was good. But then uh, he would never suckle. He just didn't have the strength back then to suckle on, on anything, on the bottle or whatever. How early was he born? How much before the due date? Actually, he was full term. He was full term. Yeah. So it was not that he was early at all. He was full term. He was supposed to be fine. Um, we, kept, we then you know, started blaming the feeding tube and the doctor that inserted the feeding tube, saying, you know, he's always full because you keep feeding him all the time. And how is he going to have the hunger to suckle? And at the hospital, the protocol is they wouldn't let you be to remove the feeding tube because that's life-threatening. So they didn't want to do that. We were transferred from uh, the hospital that he was born to, to Seattle Children's Hospital. And I have to say, Seattle Children's is amazing. The day that he was transferred there, within about 24 hours, they did so much tests on him, MRI, x-rays, bone, bone scans. They sent labs. I felt like we got we got so much done in a day and we knew about uh, his condition and the complexity. And, and now that gave me confidence that they know what they were doing. And it, 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 was a, it was a night and day difference to go to the children's hospital. And I just love them for what they do. Um, they're amazing, they're incredible people. It's so important to find that, that medical team, the whole team. It's, it's not just one doctor, it's a, it's a team. And it's all the people within a facility too that, that work together that can understand the need that our experts in, in what needed to be done. So your son had, had things that they may not have seen exactly before, but they knew what to do and how to diagnose better. And then the other side of it is the human side of it. They also were probably much more skilled at building trust between you because they know that's an issue. Your denial isn't the first person who's ever denied when they got, uh, less than good news, right? And it's, you almost just told us about the, the, the change curve. You said, well, we were denying and then we were angry and then we were, but they know how to deal with that and build trust. And it's such a remarkable difference in a, in a healthcare experience when you find those right people who understand how to treat you 
and your family well as you're going through this? When, as, as I said originally, uh, it's a lonely journey, and and sometimes the our, our friends are the, are this medical team that probably understand the journey most uh, and can sympathize with us the most compared to anybody else. Um, I think finding the right medical team, I I, I cannot under, I cannot state it anymore. It's it, it's one of those uh, one of the best things that we could ever do for the kid is to find the right medical team. And actually, one of the best things we could do for us as well, because we need uh, just as much um, emotional support and, and the right team can actually give that support. I, have, I, can, I can go on and on and on about medical teams and, and how they behave and, and how, it in, how it impacts us. But um, uh, I'll, I'll kind of come back to, this, to the story again. He was there in the hospital for about 21 days. And primarily, he was just being observed. He was very stable. Like he didn't have oxygen problems. He didn't need oxygen. He wasn't life-threatened or whatever. Um, but we, we were doing all the diagnostic workup and, and they had to make sure everything was fine, which they did. And uh, we also started uh, doing some genetic testing. Right? And back then, they did microarray testing. Uh, I knew what a microarray was from my master's work because my professor used to talk about microarrays. And I, I really like microprocessors, so I like microarrays too. The, the 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 doctor there asked me this question and this is another defining moment that I keep going back to and, and asking myself why I did the decision the way I did it. She asked me, she told me that the the, the, the present presentation, all the clinical presentation that he's having uh, with his bone conditions and neurological things and all the things that they, that's going on with him doesn't match any known existing um, medical uh, condition for a diagnosis. So she recommended going in for a whole exome sequencing. Now, being who I am, I said, yeah, the DNA is the source code for the body. So every problem has to come from the DNA. So just don't go to the DNA yet. Uh, I don't need you to look at that. Just fix my kid. I know you can, uh, again, being in denial of the doctors, I thought that they were just trying to find a reason and put a pin on a problem that I cannot solve and let us out of the system uh, without actually solving uh, or giving him a better quality of life. So I thought, you know, just don't blame the DNA for everything. Let's not do an exome sequence right now. Uh, let's just do whatever basic test you want and let's call it done. So actually, we did not do an exome sequence. We had the chance to do it at five days old, when he was five days old. We did not do it. And later, about nine months is when we ended up doing an exome sequencing on him. That we said, uh, screw this feeding tube. My son can feed orally. So let's do a, a, a weaning on him. Uh, the, the whole idea of a weaning is, is we signed up with the weaning program. They gave us a schedule. We felt so empowered. Uh, we induced hunger by reducing volume gradually of a volume of food. And then the more hunger he felt, he feels the, his natural instinct to suck and eat will kind of show up. Uh, and it's the truth for so many kids. We've spoken to so many families. We have a, There was a Facebook group of two weaning kids. We spoke to a lot of families. It is the truth for many, many families. One, one morning, um, my son was just sleeping. He wouldn't wake up. He wouldn't wake up for his feet. We thought he was just being tired and, and fuzzy and cranky, or he was just playing games with us. And he was four months old. And we kept 
pushing him and you know jolting him and taking him around for a walk he just wouldn't open his eyes he was breathing fine but he just wouldn't open his eyes so we decided okay let's just pour some milk in his mouth because he's it's time for his feed it's been too long since he's fed let's just pour some milk in his mouth and he would his natural instinct to suck and this is where the human body is amazing we pour some milk in his mouth and his is just his tongue just took it in it's reflexively and after about 30 ml he woke up and it was not until after he woke up that we realized he had fainted and that was that was when we said we are wrong it took 4 months uh it took about a month and a half of weaning where he actually did not lose any weight but if i now look back at the pictures he lost fat or whatever his his starts to look super super thin and those pictures are one of the worst pictures we have of him it's the most painful pictures because he he looks so plump and and you know like you know well fed and then after the weaning right around the end of the weaning he was so tired but he would talk a lot and he would move his hands a lot uh, after the weaning than before the weaning that was the confounding factor all along through the weaning process he would take about 70% of his volume uh, that he his daily recommended volume orally and he would talk to us he would smile at us he had so much social interaction going on through the weaning period that we thought it was going fantastic while it was going completely south and he fainted so that's when we said we're wrong and let's stop what we're doing let's go back to the tube it's saving him it's helping him and then we got him a more advanced like a feeding tube called a g tube through the operation and then now now he's growing crazy like we're growing amazing which is awesome he is big it's hard to carry him now <laughs> that is wonderful news exactly we are all delighted i keep i keep pointing at his little little belly and keep saying him saying that you have a belly now you know back when he was weaning he had this inward facing belly not an outward belly it was so there was no belly basically it would just sink in into his ribs um now he has he has a belly so i'm so proud of that now <laughs> the little things that we are proud of um and and after that we said uh we're wrong let's go talk to the doctors let's go you know admit our mistakes and let's do whatever we think we have to do and so we got into the orthopedics clinic uh because he has skeletal abnormalities that we was detected before and speaking of connecting the dots through the whole four months when he had the the feeding tube the oral uh, the nasal feeding tube we had done a lot of x-rays on him to just look at how his feeding tube has been placed in his stomach because he would keep throwing out of that irritation uh throwing up of irritation uh and that helped us because that x-ray caught a flattening of his of his vertebrae the progression of the flattening of his vertebrae which was a key piece to diagnose the specific type of skeletal dysplasia that he has i cannot predict if we had done the genetic testing when he was 5 months 5 5 days old that we would have gotten this diagnosis maybe maybe not but this this skeletal presentation was key to getting to get the right skeletal dysplasia and then we did an exome sequencing honestly we didn't expect much out of it i always had this we got feeling that you know yeah it's just the dna there's going to be too many things wrong 
nature is always uh, a bad coder. They make they introduce bugs in the source code of the DNA. So I'm sure we're going to find mistakes there, but I, I'm sure it'll, it'll not be any consequential mistakes. So it should be fine. We kept telling each other, me and my wife, that it's it's, it's no big deal. I mean, what what can go wrong, right? We are all healthy people. We have been really healthy through our lives. Uh, everyone in our immediate family, or even even the extended family, have been fairly healthy. We've had no problems with anybody. We were celebrating his first birthday. Um, this was uh, August uh, 2018. We were celebrating his first birthday, or 2019. Uh, we got a call from the geneticist, um, and she said, we have your son's exome results. Uh, he has this mutation in this gene called GPX4, uh, and she said, we don't really know much about this mutation in the science of the literature at all. Uh, but the only thing we knew was that the two kids that they were reported to have this condition passed away a few weeks after birth. But your son is one year old, so I think he's doing better. I couldn't understand the meaning of the word better at that point. I've heard the word better so many times in my life. I just couldn't understand how you would say living is better than dying. I mean, that's not even a sentence, right? Like, like you cannot have, expect anybody to die. No, it's impossible. And, and one year later, someone else comes and certifies that my son is better because he's living than dying. Back then, it was something as if someone uh, spoke to me in Greek and Latin. I, I just, my band couldn't grapple with that fact. And we went on with the birthday party. We had no idea what was going on. We had, a, we had an appointment scheduled to talk to them. We went and spoke with them. She gave us a couple of papers. This is all new. When you get a diagnosis like this, we don't really know what's going to happen. And, and they didn't know what was going to happen to him in the future either because there were no kids that lived past few weeks with this condition. So nobody even knew what life for these kids looks like. And now we're, we're sitting there thinking, is my son going to be fine? Or is he going to be having a serious life-threatening condition? Or is he going to be disabled and having, having trouble all through his future? We don't really know. You can continue to follow Raghav's story next time on Raising Rare. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org.